0: Well, good morning, and Merry Christmas, great to see you all this morning. We are in a series titled Believe, uh, here this Christmas season, and uh, I'll let you know right up front, I came down with a rather nasty cold yesterday, so I apologize for whatever's going to happen up here in the next few minutes, but uh, sniffling and snorting and all of that. Um, I'll let you know also in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to start a new series that's titled Pirates, and uh, you'll have to come and find out what that means. Um, but uh, all the month of January, Pirates, you can come and talk like a pirate, dress like a pirate. Arr, yar. Yeah. You can come and do that. But uh, we, uh, it's going to be an exciting series, and I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope that you'll be with us for that and invite your friends to be a part of that. Two weeks ago... We uh, studied why it is that the Old Testament prophets were believable in their witness regarding the promised, long-awaited Messiah or Christ and, and how their witness was shown to be truly and accurately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. We observed that there are over 300 prophecies regarding Messiah in the Old Testament, all of which can be seen to have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus And then last week we we spent some time thinking together about the role that the angels played in the birth narratives of Jesus, in that experience, what they said about him, about his identity, about his mission, and why they too are to be believed. In the remaining time that we have together on this final Sunday before Christmas, what I'd like for us to do is to examine together the witness of the apostles regarding the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus. But instead of looking as we usually do, uh, again at the narratives in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that contain the Christmas story, I'd like us to spend some time reflecting on what the apostles have to tell us about the incarnation of Jesus Christ in their writings in the rest of the New Testament. Now the word incarnation can seem to be intimidating at first. It's one of those big theological terms, but allow me to remove that part of the mystery that can be removed because the incarnation really is a a mystery. The word incarnation, as it applies to Jesus Christ, means that in the person of Jesus, God put on human flesh. The God of the universe, the God of the ages, the eternal God, put on finite human flesh. In the middle of that word incarnation are those four letters C-A-R-N. And you might think of chili con carne, which means chili with meat, right? Because when Christians assert that, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, we mean not that he is God mixed with beans and wrapped in an aluminum can, but that he is God wrapped in human meat, if you will human flesh, a human body. And for those who falsely and mistakenly believe in a doctrine of reincarnation, which is the notion that there is one's eternal soul having been loosed from one body that has died, is again rebirthed in a new body, whether human or animal or otherwise. Incarnation then means simply and basically to inhabit a body made of flesh and blood. Having said that, it's important for us to understand the distinct privilege and the unique role of being numbered among the apostles of Jesus. Uh, What is an apostle? Um, You know, some people say, well, they're the husbands of the epistles. But no, that's not right. The word apostle means one who is sent. A representative, an ambassador. Uh, so when we speak of the apostles of Jesus, we're speaking of a small, privileged group of men who were called into a close relationship with Jesus so that he could, in turn, send them out into the world as his representatives. In fact, in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 15 of his gospel, Mark recorded that at the outset of his public ministry, out of the many that were already following Jesus, uh, he called twelve to himself and appointed them uh, apostles, that they might be with him, he says, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. The prerequisite to being sent out to preach and to receiving spiritual authority over demons was to be with him. Uh, someone rightly observed that witness is withness. That it begins with having a relationship. It means being in close relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's still true today that if we we're going to have a witness to the work, a person in the work of Jesus Christ as we experience him in our own lives, we need to spend time with him. And with him, the apostles were up close, in intimate relationship. Um, night and day, for a period of approximately three years. And out of that experience, it was that the apostles proclaimed what they had seen and heard. And it's important that we make that distinction, we understand what is being said, because the apostles weren't spouting some new theology, they weren't uh, trying to create a new religion, they were simply witnessing to what they had experienced of this man Jesus that had called them into a close relationship, this rabbi who was making such a difference in Israel. On one occasion recorded in the book of Acts, two of the apostles were commanded by the Jewish ruling authorities to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And their reply was telling. They said, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And no one expresses that with greater clarity than the Apostle John in the opening lines of his first letter. Allow me to read this for you as you follow along. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. experience that took place neither in fantasy nor in philosophy, but in space and time that involved the senses. We saw it. We touched it. Our hands handled it. We heard it. He mentions senses of hearing, vision, touch. Twice in this short paragraph, You search searched the That the proclamation of the apostles is rooted in what they had seen and heard. So that their proclamation is given in the form of a first-hand eyewitness testimony. Remember, the apostles didn't ask to be apostles. They weren't soliciting a role close to Jesus. Well, they did later, (laughs) some of them. Seeking priority. But initially, they were simply called into relationship. They were called to be with him, that that he might send them out to preach and to have authority over demons. When John speaks in verses 1 and 3 of what they saw with their eyes, the word that he uses implies observation combined with thoughtful reflection. Some translations put it this way, we, we beheld his glory. Which means that they had time, not only to observe, but to come to reasoned conclusions about who they believed Jesus was. I want to move on to another passage, but before we do that, let's briefly make note of the specific phrases that John uses in this paragraph to describe Jesus. In verse 1, he is that which was from the beginning. If you have a Bible that you can write in today, just underline that phrase. That which was from the beginning. And then he also describes him as the word of life there in verse 1. The word of life. Verse 2, he is the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. There's an eternality about this word. But he appeared to us. The word became flesh. So what's John saying? He's saying at least three things. First, he's saying that Jesus is from the beginning. That is to say that the birth of Jesus Christ, in that birth, eternity intersected time and space. In the baby born in Bethlehem, the eternal God personally entered the world inhabited by human beings. Second, he's saying that his entry into the world was a real entry. That his physical appearance was not an illusion. But that in him, God took upon himself, the eternal God, the creator God, took upon himself real humanity. There was a heresy in the early church that that said basically this, that, well, God didn't really appear in the flesh because flesh is evil. So he couldn't have, God couldn't have taken upon himself flesh. He just appeared to be in the flesh. John says, no, it was a tactile, sensory experience of God in the flesh. Third, John is saying that Jesus is the word of life. And when that word is spoken into our lives, he brings us from death to life. Jesus is the word who can transform our mere existence, our humdrum day-to-day lives into real living, real life. It's clear then that the apostles taught that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus allowed them to come to their own conclusions over time, didn't he? Through extended personal exposure regarding who he was and There came a time during the early days of his personal ministry that he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some think that you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, but who do you say that I am? He asked them. And it was Peter that said, I'm sure somewhat haltingly, but then blurted it out. Well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Even after his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, some of the disciples were still unsure as to his real identity. And that's this is one of the places where the scriptures just ring with authenticity. Because the writers were honest to say, we still weren't sure still didn't really understand. There's so many things we didn't understand about who Jesus was and what he was going to do and why he did them. And, And some of the things he said just baffled us. One of the apostles, Thomas, even after the resurrection, would not believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead until Jesus showed him the nail prints in his hands and his feet, the spear mark in his side. And it was then... That Thomas said, his final conclusion, my Lord and my God. In the prologue to his gospel, John uses language similar to the words he used later in the epistle, which we just read. But John 1, beginning at verse 1, in the beginning was the word. You say that sounds very similar, doesn't it, to what we just read in 1 John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Notice again that John says of Jesus the word, that he was there In the beginning. Again, we saw earlier John began his letter, his epistle, that which was from the beginning. And with that choice of words, John must have intended on both occasions to redirect our minds as his readers back to Genesis 1 1, where we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, at the creation, the word was, he says. Not the word became, but at the creation, the word was. Next, John says of the word that he was with God, and John wants us to know that this word, who was in the beginning, is separate in some way from God, and yet face to face with him, in, in vital relationship, in vital union with him. And then to complete the trifecta, John declares, and the Word was God. At the heart of the message of the apostles is this bedrock conviction that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in human flesh. And to take it one more step, and this kind of begins, just make, begins to make your brain cramp, I think. Your head explode, maybe. He he declares all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In Genesis 1, we read that phrase over and over again, eight times, and God said, and God said, and God said. Jesus, John wants us to understand, himself was there at the dawn of creation, and he himself is, and this is where your head just explodes, okay? So tell your neighbor, get ready. He himself is that creative word by which God spoke the cosmos into being the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. Jesus, the word, is God's own agent in creation. One of the psalmists wrote, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. The apostle Paul wrote of Jesus to the church in Colossae, the sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The writer of the book of Hebrews began in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In him was life, John wrote. Jesus is the creative word of God. But not only that, he is also the sustaining word of God. In him, all things are held together. Scientists have speculated for ages. What is it that holds all of this together? Why doesn't it all just explode and disintegrate? The answer is this that the universe is sustained, held together, only because Jesus continues to say that it should. The apostles taught that in Jesus Christ, God put on human flesh. Again, John wrote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, The only God who is at the Father's side, he, he has made him known. See, it was first the conclusion and then the conviction of the apostles that God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Christ. Again, Paul wrote in Colossians 2, 9, "For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. He who existed from limitless eternity has entered time and space and taken up residency here on earth. The word became flesh and tabernacled is the literal word. He pitched his tent. He built his house among us. In relationship to eternity, he is very God of very God. In relationship to time, he is made knowable and approachable through the mystery of his nativity. I hope you'll bear with me just a little while longer. Let's go over to Philippians chapter 2. Tim Keller said of this passage that if the Bible were a mountain range, Philippians 2 would be one of the two or three of its highest peaks. In this important passage, Paul says some things that we need to consider before we close this conversation. Have this mind among yourselves, he wrote, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul tells us first here that Christ Jesus was in the form of God. And the word, this translated form, is not an unfamiliar word to any of us. It's the word morphe. And we know it from words like metamorphosis or morphology or if you're a Matrix fan, the name Morpheus. In our use, we most often think that that when something morphs, it changes only its outward appearance. But in fact, the word morphe implies the very essence of someone or something. Those inward qualities or attributes that constitute who or what they truly are. So when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he's not saying that. Jesus looked like God. He's saying that Jesus was in very nature God. He was God in every way. It's another way of saying in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Paul goes on to say that Jesus, being in the form of God, being in every way God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped something to be clung to, something to be held on to. And in this, Jesus sets himself apart from Satan or Lucifer, who was not God but set his heart on becoming God, displacing God, making himself God, and for that reason was defeated and evicted from heaven. And Jesus sets himself apart from all of the rest of us who are not God, but who want to assert control over our own lives, and in so doing, rebel against God's rightful rule over our own lives. Jesus didn't have to grasp after deity because he possessed it. God cannot stop being God, and so we need to ask what it is that happened when God the Son became flesh and Paul tells us he says first of all that he emptied himself he emptied himself but again what does that mean how did he empty himself well we know that in his earthly life and ministry he did and said things that only God could do and say he exercised divine authority over the material world over demons over sickness and even death and so in what way did he empty himself? Well, it's, it's really a short putt to see that he temporarily gave up the prerogatives of heaven. He gave up the glory of heaven. When he prayed in John 17 in that high priestly prayer, he said, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. It was that glory that he Gave up temporarily. Paul tells us first that he took the form form of a servant. The word here again is morphe. Morphe. He took the form of a servant. Being in every way God he became also in every way a servant. Jesus said of himself the son of man came not To be served, but to serve. To give his life a ransom for many. He took that form to himself. He clothed himself in it. He didn't exchange deity for humanity, instead, he inserted deity into humanity. He clothed himself in our flesh. Secondly, Paul says that he was born in the likeness of men. The word likeness means exactly what it means in our everyday use. It means to bear a striking resemblance to someone or something while not being an exact copy. God the Son, the creator of the universe, willingly, intentionally chose to accept the limitations of a human body Jesus, born in human flesh, was fully man, but unlike the rest of us, he was also fully God. In the baby in the manger, the fullness of God was fully present in a fully human body. I wonder what that must have been like for the creator of the universe. To willingly confine himself to the tininess of a human body. Paul goes on and says that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross see, had Jesus not become flesh, if the word had not become flesh, if God had not inserted himself into a human body, Jesus could not have been our savior. He couldn't have stood in for us and been our substitute at the cross. He couldn't have borne the sins of humanity. He willingly became what he was not so that we could become what we are not. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he became what we are so that we could become what he is. The son of God. So we're reminded of the words of the prophet, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The words of the angel to Joseph are called to mind. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And we recall the words of the angels to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem that night, Fear not, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And on that basis, the apostles taught that God super-exalted Jesus. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Literal translation, super-exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul began his teaching to the Philippians in chapter 2 with an exhortation. Have this attitude among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus have this mind in you and the words that he the word that he uses there means not only your intellect not just your thought life but your heart your soul your mind as well as your guts have this in you which was also in Christ Jesus who gave up the prerogatives of heaven to become a servant and to give his life let the attitude of Jesus change your heart and mind and that's really the context in which Paul was writing See, you may be a a regular attender here at LifePoint. You may be visiting with us today. You, You may possibly never have considered who Jesus really is or taken the time to even begin to examine the question. But no matter who you are, I don't want you to miss Christmas this year. And of course, Christmas Day will come and you'll do something. You'll maybe go through the motions of whatever your family's traditions are at this time of year, but it's possible, isn't it, to celebrate Christmas without ever experiencing Christmas, completely missing its reality, completely missing its power. The only way you adopt the attitude of Jesus, emptying yourself and becoming a servant to others in any lasting way, is to have Jesus himself take up residence in your life and create that attitude from the inside out. I don't know about you, but I have a very healthy streak of selfishness in me. The idea of becoming a servant to others, I can't manifest that and sustain it in any meaningful way of myself. Unless Jesus Christ changes me from the inside out, the idea of ever having this same attitude, this same heart, this same mind of Christ in me is a futile endeavor. In 1950, a British author named C.S. Lewis, you know him, was himself coming to terms with who Jesus really is in his own life. And he penned an article that he titled, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? In that article, he said this, if you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? he would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you'd gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would first have rent his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you're a poached egg when you're not looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you are God... There is no chance for you. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. We can see each of those three responses to Jesus and the the larger story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And people went on responding to him in one of those three ways right on through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. In fact, people are still responding to him in, in one of those three ways today. So let me ask you as we closed today and i know that this has been a kind of a heady message and it was intended to be that way because i wanted to challenge your minds i want always to challenge your minds to think biblically and to think christianly but what will be your response to jesus what will you make of him will you respond in hatred reject him entirely revile his name will you live in fear of him as one who wants to come and take over because that's exactly what he will do in your life and that can be a fearful thing can't it or will your response be one of love and adoration worship celebration John said of Jesus that he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. But to as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And I'm inviting you on his behalf today in this Christmas season 2018 to experience Christmas, to believe in him, not just about him, but to believe in him. That's been the whole point of the series, believe. What is your trustworthy object? What is it that that your life is firmly founded upon, that frees you to live life? I'm inviting you not to believe about Jesus. The Bible says that even the demons believe about Jesus and tremble inviting you to put your faith in him and which means that you entrust not only your life to him in obedience as Lord that you entrust eternity to him what comes next after you breathe your last and that's done not by joining a club or signing a contract just by trusting personally In Jesus Christ, leaning into him, putting your full weight into him and trusting that what he came to do and what he accomplished at the cross and through his death and his burial and his resurrection was sufficient for all of your sin. So I'm inviting you to believe in him, to be welcomed as a member of his family, as a son or a daughter of God, to experience new freedom and purpose and direction in your life. Oh come. Let us adore him. Oh come. Let us adore him. Oh come. Let us adore him. Christ. The Lord. So we come to his table. This morning. The table is open to those. Who have done just that. Who have believed in him who have trusted him for the forgiveness of their sins. If that's true of you, you're invited to the table. And perhaps this will be the first day that you have met that qualification because you personally today have said, God, I don't necessarily understand all of this, but I do know this, that you, Jesus, are Lord and Savior. And I need my sins to be dealt with. So today, I'm believing in you. Let's pray. Lord, we come now to celebrate, to remember that action by which you accomplished our salvation, your death and your burial and your resurrection. And Lord, we we see in the bread, your body that was given for us and in the juice, your blood which was shed for us, which was sufficient, your word tells us, to cover all of our sin for all time. How can it be? How can it be? And yet we accept it as true, and we believe today in you, and we celebrate your birth, your death, your resurrection. And we anticipate with joy your coming again. Amen.